You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Ladies and gentlemen, Real Paranormal Activity is proud to present Terry's Mysterious Moments. Welcome to Terry's Mysterious Moments, Season 3. Thank you for joining me on this journey into the odd, the weird, the strange. Hope you'll enjoy it. Now, on with the show. Good evening, everybody. This is Terry from Texas with another episode of Terry's Mysterious Moments. To all you Mysterians out there, thank you for joining me. I'm glad you are along for this ride. This is going to be a mishmash of sorts. Several different stories that have no theme running through them. It's just things that I've picked up the last week or two that I just wanted to, to clear out of my file system. Uh, first off, I want to start with the recaps on a couple of previous stories. In Season 2 of TMM, uh, Episode 6, I told the story of the well-known and much-loved band leader, Glenn Miller, who disappeared during a flight from England to France to prep for a radio broadcast for Allied troops. His plane disappeared over the English Channel and, for all intents and purposes, has never been found until recently perhaps on December 15, 1944 a small plane carrying band leader Glenn Miller to a concert to entertain the troops in Paris disappeared in bad weather over the English Channel the disappearance was not reported until December 24th and the plane has never been found those are the last lines of almost every obituary you will read about Glenn Miller. They all say the same thing. Of course, like I said, Glenn Miller was one of the most popular big band leaders of pre-World War II times and during World War II. Uh, joined the military and became leader of the, I believe it was the Army Air Corps Band is the designation it had at the time. He wanted to update the simple boring marches that the bands always had to play at reviews and you know passbys whatever you call them and he did um, if you believe the movie about him with Jimmy Stewart he did it on his own and took the heat later and then found out that the higher general he really enjoyed what he did. So he was known for something called the St. Louis Blues March. St. Louis Blues was a literally a blues song, but he put it to, to a march rhythm and pepped it up. If you've ever seen the movie A Soldier Story 
with Howard E. Rollins and Denzel Washington and several other up-and-coming black actors at the time. That's the song that ended the movie as the black troops were getting ready to march out of their base to finally get into the war in Europe. Anyway, there may need to be a reconsideration of the ending of the Glenn Miller story, as in his plane was never found. Well, it may have been because several years ago, a fisherman out in the waters around England caught a hold of something on the bottom and brought it up and realized it must have been an airplane because of the way it was shaped. He did not get permission to bring the thing into land to have it examined, so he had to drop it back down in the water. But he made a note of where it was, so he knew how to get back to it, which is a good thing. This is the way the story goes. Um, These things often start with stories, but if he really did pull up this wreck and let it go again, but he knows where it let it go, the possibility exists that there's a defined area that could be searched. Now, apparently something else I read was that this was not in the area where they thought Glenn Miller's plane went down. This was south of the islands, uh, apparently. I don't know the, the British geography that well, so I can't really clarify that. If the fisherman's recollection is correct, there's a possibility the wreckage of the Glenn Miller aircraft could be located. Fortunately, the trawler man, again identified only as Mr. Fisher, wrote down the coordinates to the spot where he left the plane in 1987. And Richard Gillespie, the executive director of TIGAR, I believe it's the way it's pronounced, it's the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery believes his group will be able to find it. They are also looking for Amelia Earhart's plane. Fisher's coordinates find the location being about 30 miles south of Portland Bill, a promontory or a bill at the southern end of the Isle of Portland on the southernmost point of Dorset, England, a location further west than where most researchers have long believed the plane went down. So apparently it wasn't that far off of England. It wasn't out over the middle of the English Channel, apparently. Why isn't Tigar out there with a trawler pulling this wreckage up? Again, Miller's plane was not metal. It was a steel tube frame covered with fabric, and it had some aluminum panels on it, plus, of course, an engine and a propeller. But the wings were made of wood. So by now, here we are, that was in 1944, we're 56 plus 20, 76 years past the time of the crash. All the fabric is almost certainly gone, being underwater, and the wings were wooden too, so they're gone. So what you've got is a steel frame that very possibly has been encountered by other fishermen. And you think about it, anchor lines, fishing lines, fishing nets, something like that may have hooked the thing and could have just turned this into a tumble of metal. It could be fairly deeply buried in sand too. So they said it's not going to look like an airplane. It's going to look like a mess. Gillespie says probably not going to be much left of the single engine UC-64A Norseman after 74 years, but he's hoping that two particular pieces can be found. A steel tubed fuselage and a Pratt & Whitney Wasp engine. The Norseman was the only plane made with that combination and all other Norse planes 
that have crashed in the channel have been found. Thus, by process of elimination, quote, if you find that, you found the Miller aircraft. Can Tigar find it? Gillespie explained to People magazine that he first has to raise the money to fund a side-scan sonar search of the area. I don't know exactly what side-scan sonar is. I don't know how it differs from just regular sonar. Maybe it picks up different details. Followed by seabed search using a remotely operated vehicle equipped with a video camera. If there's anything that looks like the plane, a diver will descend the 130 feet to examine and possibly recover an identifiable piece. While he didn't put a price tag on it, the expedition is obviously the kind that should raise the interest cable TV channels looking for something other than trash pickers to cover. Ooh, that's a jab. The search for Miller's plane should also interest conspiracy theorists. There are three prominent conspiracy theories about what happened to Glenn Miller. Number one, he was assassinated after Dwight Eisenhower sent him on a secret mission to negotiate a peace deal with Nazi Germany. Number two, Miller made it to Paris, but he died of a heart attack in a bordello, and that's apparently a Nazi theory that was progressed. Or number three, his plane was hit and destroyed by bombs dumped from Allied bomber planes returning from an aborted raid over Germany. In my opinion, the only two people who know what happened on that flight are long dead. Uh, next step, I've previously talked about UFOs. I've used others' stories about UFOs, and I've used my own. Then, recently, this pops up. The Navy says UFOs are real. UFO hunters are thrilled. My response, yeah, and? Of course they're real. People see them. Heck, I've seen them. But I believe they are exactly what they are labeled as. Unidentified flying objects. There are things that are being spotted and have been spotted for centuries, it would seem. Personally, it is my opinion that UFOs are not intergalactic Ubers. Well, shoot fire, our military has been studying collected reports since around World War II. From the mention of Foo Fighters by pilots over Germany and, and I think even over South Pacific. Balls of lightning, balls of light, things like that following the airplanes, which they said could very possibly be St. Elmo's fire or ball lightning. But they've investigated these things. In the organized investigation, first came Project Sign in 1947. You know, I really love the way the military adds really classy names to what they're doing. Project Sign. Project Sign in 1947. And we know that in 1947 is when the man saw the flying saucers out in Washington State, I believe it was. Kenneth Arnold, that's who it was reported these five or six flying saucers out beside him as he flew a private plane. Anyway, after sign came Project Grudge in 1949. Then came the ever-loving, hot-doggiest research yet, Project Blue Book, beginning in 1952. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too 
like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And it was one of a series of systematic studies of unidentified flying objects, or UFOs, conducted by the United States Air Force. A termination order was given for the study in December of 1969, so for 17 active years, they researched all kinds of reports of UFOs. So they have scads of material, scads of data collected from eyewitnesses and in some cases supposed abductees, all kinds of people. They've got a lot of information there. Project Blue Book had two goals. Number one, to determine if UFOs were a threat to national security. And number two, to scientifically analyze UFO related data. So they wanted to take a scientific approach to this. They wanted to take a, a real, you know, is this thing going to hurt us approach, but they wanted to do it scientifically too. Thousands of UFO reports were collected, analyzed, and filed. And as a result of the Condon Report in 1968, which concluded there was nothing anomalous about UFOs, in a review of the report by the National Academy of Sciences, Project Blue Book was terminated in 69. The Air Force supplies the following summary of its investigations. No UFO reported, investigated, and evaluated by the Air Force was ever an indication of threat to our national security. Two, there was no evidence submitted to or discovered by the Air Force that sightings categorized as unidentified represented technological developments or principles beyond the range of modern scientific knowledge. Well, that one just opens up a whole can of worms of questions. There was no evidence indicating sightings categorized as unidentified were extraterrestrial vehicles. Well, they may have been a little short-sighted on that one and, and just doing a really good case of CYA. By the time Project Blue Book ended, it had collected 12,618 UFO reports and concluded that most of them were misidentifications of natural phenomena clouds, stars, Jupiter, Saturn, Venus, swamp gas, or of conventional aircraft. According to the National Reconnaissance Office, a number of the reports could be explained by flights of the formerly secret reconnaissance planes U-2 and A-12. And I want to say that the A-12 became the SR-71, but I'm not real certain about that. A small percentage of UFO reports were classified as unexplained, even after stringent analysis. The UFO reports were archived and are available under the Freedom of Information Act, but names and other personal information of all witnesses has been redacted. But within the last couple of years, Navy pilots have been going on record as having encountered, tracked, in one case almost crashed into, and even filmed by way of onboard recording methods, alleged UFOs off both the East Coast and the West Coast of the United States. 
I have to admit that the videos to me are suspect since they look like infrared imaging, thus allowing no specific details about what they are tracking other than something. And without knowing the maneuvers of the recording aircrafts, an object that suddenly accelerates out of the picture may just be the aircraft sudden jinking or turning in the opposite direction. Also to be considered is that apparently many of the ships had undergone upgrades in the very systems which indicate that something is out there. Perhaps a somewhat less than fully engaged programmer trying to make things a bit more exciting in what might be a brain dulling and heart deadening job. Or they are seeing exactly what they are reporting. Like I said, I, I believe in UFOs. I've seen some. Aliens, not so much. Haven't seen any of them. But I want to tell a little bit of time left. I want to tell this story. It should have been included in a previous show, but I ran out of time. The very strange case of Mr. and Mrs. Thomas B. Cumston. On December 8th of 1873, Mr. and Mrs. Thomas B. Cumston arrived in Bristol, England. For a short holiday. They stayed at the Victoria Hotel and were soon to encounter something so unbelievable that it both shocked and confused them so much that it caused them to be arrested for disorderly conduct from the local railway station soon after the event. The couple told in court of how early in the evening they had heard strange loud sounds in or near their room. They complained to the landlady, who also heard the noises but thought nothing of them. After the noises ceased, they retired to bed for the night but were awoken at approximately 3 a.m. by the same loud noises. This time they were accompanied by the incredible sensation that the floor was giving way beneath them. The couple shouted out for help and could not help but notice how strange their shout sounded, echoing weirdly and being repeated by unseen presences. Mr. Cumston then told of how the floor suddenly opened up and how it felt as if he were being dragged into it. Mrs. Cumston managed to pull him out and the two of them made a hasty escape out a nearby window. And that's a woman you want to have behind you, Mrs. Cumston, yes. They were panicked beyond belief and were under the confused impression that criminals had somehow attempted to kidnap them. They fled to the nearby railway station where they were soon arrested by local police for disorderly conduct. The landlady testified in police court that she had indeed heard the unusual noises, but she had no significant recollection of them. The police had checked out the Cumston's room and found nothing out of the ordinary. The court concluded that the Cumstons had suffered a, quote, collective hallucination unquote, and let them go. And to this day, there is no explanation for what actually happened to the Cumstons. Our world is strange. Our world is weird. We have two choices. Disbelieve it all, or accept it. I think I'll accept it. Okay, got some more time, so I'm going to tell another little story here. I want to go back to my favorite Civil War place, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, a place I've never been to. In Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, where perhaps the most famous battle of the Civil War was fought, several private homes became everlasting depositories of spiritual energy because they were used as field hospitals for the wounded. 
One such place is the Hummel Bow House, where the stories say that the cries of Confederate Brigadier General William Barksdale can still be heard on certain nights. Barksdale was wounded while leading a charge on Seminary Ridge and was brought to the Hummelbaugh House, and according to an officer from the 148th Pennsylvania Volunteers, Barksdale was last seen lying in front of the house and a young boy was giving him water with a spoon. The general continued to call for water as though the boy did not exist, calling over and over again. In the years since, the legends say the sound of Barksdale's voice can still be heard. Now there's an interesting side note to this story. When I did security back some years ago here in San Antonio, I worked at a condo and uh, several wealthy residents in there. And one of the ladies was last name Barksdale. And her son came by to pick her up one day. And I just mentioned, because I knew the story of General Barksdale, I said, are, are you all somehow kin to the General Barksdale of, of uh, the Civil War. And said, yeah, there, there were actually two General Barksdales and we're kin to both of them because they're close family. And that's the last I got to talk to him. But I thought that was interesting that um, I worked in a place where a, a, an ans a, a descendant of General Barksdale lived. I thought that was pretty cool that's not the only story connected to the house or to Brigadier General Barksdale. The other stories connected to the days after the battle when Barksdale's wife journeyed to Gettysburg to have her husband's remains exhumed and returned to their home in Mississippi. She was accompanied on her trip by the general's favorite hunting dog. As the old dog was led to his master's grave he fell down onto the ground and began to howl. No matter what Mrs. Barksdale did, she was unable to pull the animal away. All through the night, the faithful dog watched over the grave. The next day, Mrs. Barksdale again tried to lure the dog away, but he refused to budge, even though the general's remains had already been loaded onto a wagon to begin the journey back to Mississippi. Finally, saddened by the dog's pitiful loyalty, she left for home. For those who lived in the area, the dog became a familiar fixture. He would occasionally let out a heartbreaking howl that could be heard for some distance. Many locals came and tried to lead the dog away, offering him food, water, and a good home. The dog refused all of their gestures and eventually died from hunger and thirst, still stretched out over his master's burial place. Over the years, a tale began to circulate that the animal spirit still lingered at the Hummelbaugh farm. It has been said that on the night of July 2nd, the anniversary of Barksdale's death, an unearthly howl echoes into the night, as the faithful hunting dog still grieves from a place beyond this world. Like I said, the world's strange. The world is odd. We either accept it and get on with life, or we just deny it forever. There are some things I deny, not many, but some. It's up to you. It's a personal belief. This, this is about as personal as it gets. This is even more personal, I believe, than religion. If, if you believe in spirituality, you have a very personal concept of it. Well, that's the show for this week, and I want to thank you and my fellow Mysterians for coming along for the ride. 
I hope you've enjoyed the stories. Like I said, it was a mishmash, and it was just stuff I wanted to clear out of my files. But I thought they would be interesting stories to follow up on. That's all I have for this week, so I want to thank you again for listening. I remind you that on Mondays, Aaron Hunter hosts Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast. Tuesdays, Aaron Frail hosts Aaron's Horror Show. Wednesdays, I host Terry's Mysterious Moments. On alternating Thursdays, Patrick Sean Jones, The Sandman Lullaby. And there's also two other shows that come on, um, I think, once a month, and they're video shows. One is called The Witching Hour, and the other is Full Dark Productions. You can find us almost anywhere you can find podcasts. We are all over the place. Of course, you can use a podcast catcher to find us. But we've also, we are also on Pandora, iHeartRadio, we're on Spotify, and etc., etc. There is an RPA app on your, your app store. Go there, download it, load it up on your phone or your tablet, and you have immediate access to RPA and its shows. Anyway, I'm going to say goodnight for now because it's late. i got still got to edit this thing. So I appreciate you being here. I hope you have a great week. Bye-bye.